We are wake-centric. We believe, without questioning, that waking consciousness, what we're doing now, is where it's at. This is the premium. This is consciousness. And that sleeping and dreaming and maybe other consciousnesses are, are secondary. And very importantly, they're seen as subservient to waking. We believe that we dream and we sleep to make us better waking people. I'm Jocelyn K. Gly, and this is Hurry Slowly, a podcast about pacing yourself, where I explore how you can be more creative, productive, and resilient through the simple act of slowing down. Now, every once in a while, I get to have the wonderful experience of reading something that utterly changes the way I think. And that was the case with an article I recently read in Aeon Magazine, written by today's guest, Ruben Nyman, a psychologist who specializes in sleep and dream medicine. In the piece, Rubin diagnosed our overworked, overstimulated modern condition with a single word that I found extremely intriguing, hyperarousal. Essentially, Rubin argues that ever since the Industrial Revolution and the introduction of artificial light, we have been falling out of sync with our natural rhythms as human animals. Staying awake longer, moving through our days faster, and treating sleep like a necessary evil, like medicine we must force ourselves to take in order to move through our days. In other words, our perspective as humans has become wake-centric. And living in a wake-centric world, where we are always doing and thinking and striving, leads us into a state of hyper-arousal, where our brain waves, our heart rates, And even our core body temperatures are constantly jacked up, speeding along, aided and abetted by uppers and downers like coffee and alcohol. And the end result is that we are constantly wired and tired, exhausted by the pace that we're operating at, but unsure how to break free. For Ruben, the solution lies in reframing the way that we view sleep shifting our perspective from sleep as a physiological process that we can track and optimize to viewing it as a deeply personal experience, one in which we enter a space of profound serenity, creativity, and humility, one in which we surrender our waking ego and slip deep into the waters of the unconscious. Let's dive in. People just aren't sleeping as much as they used to these days. What does the decline look like? How do those numbers stack up? I think uh, if we step back and look at the trend, um, part of the reason we're not sleeping is, is about our relationship with sleep. But the other part is about our relationship with waking. If we think about sleeping and waking as being two adjacent territories, it's not just that we're losing sleep, it's, it's, it's that waking is beginning to dominate the territory of sleep. We, we are so immersed in waking. Now, our relationship to waking is much like uh, the relationship a fish would have to water. Uh, it's the medium within which we live, and we don't recognize its impact on its adjacent state of consciousness uh, or the, the, both the states of sleep and dreams. 
So in terms of the numbers since the Industrial Revolution, since the introduction of light at night, um, waking has been taking over the territory of sleep. And, and probably the most dramatic advance uh, has resulted in the last 50 or 60 years. Uh, up until about 1950, um, even 70% of rural households in the U.S. had no electricity. So as electricity moved throughout throughout the continent, throughout the world, we began to see more and more daylight, daytime invading the night. And of course, the end result of that is that there's a dramatic diminishment in sleep. And despite all the effort that we've seen in initiatives and advances in research around sleep, um, we're seeing very little improvement and, and probably, in, in my estimation, where things are actually getting worse. And how does that sleep loss impact our well-being? Well, it impacts us in a number of ways. It impacts us psychologically. It impacts us medically. Uh, it also has a, a pretty profound effect on us economically. And, and I would add, it has a negative effect on our spirituality, on, on just on the way, the quality, the deep quality of our lives and the way we see life. In the end, uh, most of us know that if we have a bad night's sleep, we, we get grumpy the next day. Uh, I guess we see this most clearly in our children. You know, when, when they're tired at night, you know, they tend to get grumpy. But it's true for adults, too. And psychologically, uh, chronic sleep loss has a dramatic effect uh, on mood. We know that it is the single strongest factor that predicts clinical depression, dramatically increases the risk for depression. In fact, the link between sleep loss and depression is so tight that many of us believe that they're actually the same condition. Chronic insomnia is virtually inseparable from clinical depression. We, they just go hand in hand. We also see increases in other psychiatric disorders. Um, it essentially affects the way we think and the way we perceive. From a, a biomedical standpoint, we've had mounting research indicating that long-term sleep loss underlies virtually all major illnesses. And, and the reason for that is even a single night of compromised sleep, losing two, three, four hours of sleep in one night, results in the beginning of a chronic inflammatory process in the body. And we know that chronic inflammation underlies uh, coronary heart disease, um, metabolic disorders like diabetes, autoimmune disorders like arthritis, neurodegenerative problems. Uh, it just goes on and on. So sleep is, is essential. It is as fundamental to our health uh, as is good nutrition and exercise. And what do you think about the impact on our relationship to, say, creativity, to our ability to innovate or really do anything, uh, you know, particularly novel or new? Yeah, I think that's an important question. Um, so when we use the term sleep in our world, we, we tend to use it to encompass both the technically what we call sleep, but also dreaming. And we've known um, for some time now that dreaming is critical to creative process. Uh, I've written about a concept I call dream eyes. And I, I think one of the best definitions we have of dreaming is dreaming is not just this experience, the, these movies that we observe at night. It turns out that dreaming is actually a way of perceiving. It's a way of seeing. And to the extent to which we can exercise dream eyes or dream eyesight at night, it generalizes to our day. Um, so in dream eyesight, it's a wide angle 
angle way of looking at the world. Uh, waking consciousness tends to be informed by intention. There are layers and layers of things that we want to do. And intention shapes perception. Um, we say motivation determines perception. What I really want in waking life will focus my attention in that direction. For example, if, if I'm hungry and cruising down the street, I'm much more likely to attend to restaurants and bakeries and places, supermarkets, places where I might find food. Uh, if I'm tired, uh, maybe I'm more likely to see mattress shops and hotels. Motivation determines perception and perception determines the waking world we live in. In the dream world at night, there's a dramatic reduction of intention. There's a dramatic reduction of motivation. This is one of the things that characterizes dreaming. And because we're in the dream with little intention, uh, our, our focus becomes very, very wide. We, we have what we call an expanded sensorium. It's so interesting in, in waking life, of course, uh, as I sit here, I can see in front of me. I can look and see in front of me. In the dream world, I can actually see 360 degrees. I can see what's in front of me, what's behind me on the sides. I can also see outside of the room or the building I might be in. So um, when we have little or no intention, it expands our capacity to see and also to make connections. So th this is the foundation, I think, of, of creativity. And I I've worked with uh, quite a few creative people, artists. Uh, I worked extensively with musicians, painters, and I, I find in and they all, in their own way, learn to tap into these dream eyes, this dreamlike way of seeing. And what do you think exactly they're tapping into? You talk about sort of this this alternate way of seeing, a sort of you know wider lens. How do you mm -hmm. kind of break that down? Is it the ability to make you know connections that you could not in your conscious waking life? Do you think it's something different from that? I, I think it's it's essentially the capacity to abstract. Um, we, we make lots and lots of connections when we're focused during the day. Psychologically, there's attention to associations during the day. And, and I think, in fact, it's the opposite in dreaming. There's kind of a disconnection from ordinary, well, certainly from ordinary uh, demands of, of waking life, from, from mundanity. Um, so dream eyes are probably most readily observed in children. Um, I think about a time I was walking with my granddaughter from my car into my house. And, um, you know, I, I, I was in my ordinary hurry, right? Uh, I had my briefcase in my hand and uh, she's four years old and, and just uh, I'm dragging her along. And she says, stop, stop, Papa, look, look, there's a rock. And, you know, look down, we live in the desert and there are millions of rocks, you know. But she says, no, 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 this one is shiny. So she had, as children do, she had no intention. There's no intention to move her forward. Children are, are very disinterested in tomorrow and yesterday. They're in the present moment. And so being in the present moment, they notice what's going on. They're just keyed into that. When we're driven by intention, uh, things that are not aligned with our intention are relatively unimportant, even meaningless. When we have less intention, virtually everything around us becomes meaningful. Uh, let me give you another example that I like to use. Um, 
I used to live in New York, and um, of course, there are lots of pigeons and occasional pigeon feathers um, on, on the sidewalk. And uh, people are scurrying along. Um, you know, people have places to go. There are things to do. You know, there's a sense of hurry uh, that's, that's so palpable in this city, in Manhattan. And um, I'm walking along with my briefcase going to a meeting somewhere. And of course, if I see a pigeon feather on the sidewalk, uh, I'll just move past it, you know piece of garbage. Now, if we switch that scene and we're moving along, we're, we're walking along somewhere in a dream, if, if that occurs in a dream, um, suddenly we notice the feather. When we wake up, we remember, oh my God, there was a feather in my dream. What does it mean? You know, <laughs> I'm on the phone with my therapist and say, hey man, you know, there was a feather in my dream. What does it mean? So it's such an interesting contrast in terms of of seeing little value or meaning in something, something ordinary in, in waking life versus that same experience in the dream, there's a sense of meaning. And dreaming, there's a sense of meaning in almost everything. And I think that is the foundation of creativity. Uh, we begin to see um, the numinous, if you will. We begin to see a sense of life, uh, a sense of energy quivering behind everything. If we look at the world, through dream eyes, if we remember how to look at the world the way we did as children. Yeah, I'm interested in this idea of kind of uh, removing the intentionality. Of course, I'm asking you, you know, these questions about sleep and the impact on creativity. And, you know, of course, there's an intention behind that, right? How can I be more creative through sleep? Um, but I like that you talk about this idea of sleep as an almost spiritual act of of letting go, this idea of transcending the waking self, um, you know, that there's this branch of Hindu philosophy that believes deep and dreamless sleep is a higher state of awareness. I'm curious if you could kind of go into more this idea of letting go and the idea that, you know, we shouldn't be trying to optimize our sleep or get something done or get more out of it. So this is a, a beautiful and, and very broad um, question you're asking. We need to consider uh, how we are stuck in waking. We are wake-centric. We believe um, without questioning that waking consciousness, what we're doing now, is where it's at. This is the premium. This is consciousness. And that sleeping and dreaming are secondary. And very importantly, they're seen as subservient to waking. Um, we, we believe that we dream and we sleep to make us better waking people. So we've diminished our, our value, our, se our sense of the meaning and value of sleeping and waking. And I think this keeps us stuck in waking. When it comes to practical matters, you know, clinical issues around getting to sleep, um, at least from a philosophical standpoint, what stands between most people and their sleep is that they try to use waking to leverage sleep. Um, in other words, so, so the, the common example of this is that people will, will think and say, I am going to sleep. Well, in our world, the, the use of the word I refers to the waking self. The waking self is the I, and, and uh, the word I actually is derived from the same root as, as the word ego. Uh, in German, das Ich, uh, it's, it's, it's the ego, it's the waking self. Um, the waking self, by definition, is incapable of sleep. 
is just incapable. It, it can set the stage to sleep. The waking self can walk us right up to the edge of the waters of sleep, but it can't swim. And, and most people are trying to use their waking self to get the waking self to sleep. And this is where they get stuck. They get stuck on the boundary. So we, we can bring ourselves to the brink of sleep, if you will, to the point of, of um, this really critical issue you mentioned uh, of learning to surrender. We're going to pause for a quick break now, but keep those earbuds plugged in because after the jump, Ruben and I get into the nuances of hyperarousal and how you can avoid it. This episode is brought to you by WordPress. I talk a lot about technology and its many discontents on this show, but that doesn't mean that I'm a Luddite. It just means that I'm super choosy about which tools I will give my attention to. And I've been a dedicated WordPress.com user for over 10 years now. I use WordPress every day to manage my personal blog, to publish this podcast, and to connect with listeners like you. I truly believe that it's a great platform for content creators. And the best thing about using WordPress is that you really don't need any experience or expertise to set up a website. They'll guide you through the process from start to finish. And they take care of the technical side so that it's easy to get your site up and running. Plus, the customer service team is available 24-7 to help you get the most out of your website. Plans start at just $4 per month. There's a reason why 28% of all of the websites on the internet run on WordPress. Get started today with 15% off any new plan purchase. Go to wordpress.com slash hurry slowly to create your website and find the plan that's right for you. That's wordpress.com slash hurry slowly for 15% off a new website. You know, this point that you make that we look at sleep as subservient to, you know, waking life and almost as a tool that we might use to perform better in our waking lives. Um, but you argue, you know, instead that they should be more equal, that it should be more of a 50-50 dynamic. And I know you've written that about this idea of sort of surrendering uh, the waking identity when we go to sleep and the humility that that takes to set our ego aside. Um, you wrote that sleep is the great equalizer. We're all the same height in bed, which I thought was really beautiful. The, the challenge around this comes from the fact that um, we move at an excessive velocity in waking life. When, when we don't have sleep present routinely, to modulate our pace, uh, it's as if we're cruising down. It's a difference between driving uh, through uh, city streets where there are stop signs and red lights and yield signs versus being on a highway uh, where people can accelerate. There, if sleep isn't present, um, there's no modulation to our waking. This has resulted in something many of us are familiar with now. It's something we call hyperarousal. 
the, the term arousal in sleep medicine basically means wakefulness or sort of borderline wakefulness. Hyperarousal suggests that we are excessively awake. We're moving too fast. We're, we're, we're accelerating through waking life. You know, it, it, if you listen to, to the way people talk, they're talking faster. This is most evident in the media, television and radio, but also in daily life. People are talking faster, walking faster, moving faster, thinking faster. Uh, and so um, it's really hard to descend and, and land, uh, land, slow down, stop, and get to sleep when people are moving so quickly. Um, many, many of us really don't hit the brakes until the car is like in the garage and it's slamming against the back wall. So the antidote to hyperarousal is humility. Um, Mary Oliver, the poet, writes about this very beautifully um, in her poem, Sleeping in the Forest. Um, she has some beautiful images about coming down. You know, I thought the earth remembered me. She took me back so tenderly. Um, I, I'm a dog lover, and um, my, my, uh, my former dog, he's gone now, was a Siberian husky. And huskies, like many other dogs, when, when they they go down to rest or to sleep, they will actually spiral over the ground. Uh, this is a beautiful image. Um, maybe when they're in the snow, they would dig down or in soft earth, some dogs dig down. But there's this notion of coming down. And um, in Jungian psychology, many of us consider the dog as the archetype of humility. Dogs are among the most humble creatures on the planet. There is a kind of um, uh, essential metaphoric reunion between the body and the planet when we go to sleep. Um, once again, that Mary Oliver poem, Sleeping in the Forest, uh, reflects this very beautifully. We, we return the body to the earth. The body goes down. Uh, the body submits, if you will, to gravity. Um, it's interesting in our era of hyperarousal in recent years, in recent decades, we've come to love these really light, feathery comforters. We associate sleep with floating, which I think is a problem. In recent years, we have growing evidence that weighted blankets can actually help people sleep. Uh, my, my parents were immigrants from, um, from Eastern Europe and they, um, they brought with them these, these heavy, heavy, heavy blankets. They were called Korderkis in, in Polish. And I remember as a kid thinking that these blankets were designed to keep me from escaping bed. You know, it was really hard to get out from under them. Uh, but there was something so comforting about the weight. And um, the body needs to go down and sleep. As the body goes down, metaphorically, the spirit rises. There is a dissociation between the psyche, the mind, the spirit, whatever we want to call it, and the body. Um, essentially, uh, once we're asleep and we move into REM sleep, uh, into dreaming, what happens is we, ex we have an, an OBE, we have an out-of-body experience. Uh, another way of looking at dreaming is dreaming is the experience of being conscious outside of the body. Because as we're dreaming, 
um, we we completely lose our muscle tone. Um, we essentially become paralyzed. Uh, it's called sleep paralysis in REM sleep. We can't move. Everything essential is under automatic pilot, but we can't intentionally move. There's no intention. The other thing is that there's virtually no sensory input. So the, there's nothing coming in through our eyes and our ears uh, into the body, and there's nothing going out because we can't move. So in the dream, we experience consciousness outside of the body and this is part of the capacity uh, to be creative so um hyper arousal stands in the way of this essential process of, of modulating uh, this deep rest that modulates our velocity and also the capacity to move into this creative expansive dreaming consciousness well, and I was going to ask you, so when we don't have this, we don't get this type of deep sleep, when we don't have this state of humility to balance us out, what do you think we're missing out on or what's uh, happening? Oh, I, I think we're missing out. We're missing out on life. We're missing out on the experience of life. Uh, Joe Campbell, a, a great psychologist, once said uh, something very controversial. He said, we're, we're not actually looking for meaning in life. And this is a common belief, isn't it? That we, we want to find meaning in life. Uh, as meaning is a concept. Meaning is an idea. And, and you know, meaning is, oh, yeah, uh-huh. He said, we're not really looking for meaning. We're looking for the experience of being alive. When we don't rest, when we don't allow, allow this expansion of consciousness, uh, it's sort of like we're wearing tight shoes all day. <laughs> um, there is no opening, there's no expansion, and it limits, it significantly limits our experience of life. Um, it, it causes us to focus very tightly. I think generally we in our world today, we're, we're much too mired in, in thinking. I talk with patients a lot about, um, I try to help them understand the, the essential intentions in their lives, both when they're awake and in dreaming, by looking at adverbs. There's an old notion that how you do anything is how you do everything. Um, we can be in a hurry slowly, or we can be in a hurry mindfully. Uh, there's nothing inherent in velocity. Uh, that, that sort of assigns a value to it. But uh, most of us don't pay attention to adverbs. We don't pay attention. We, we pay attention to what we're doing. So, for example, uh, to-do lists are essentially lists of verbs. Uh, they're a list of verbs, you know, go, call, write, buy, sell, whatever. Um, and and uh, they're associated with specifics. But the belief is that if we engage in these verbs, if we do these behaviors and check enough of these off our daily to-do list, that, that our life will be good. That if we do the right things. I, 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 I don't think so. I think at the end of the day, the quality of our lives depends less on what we do and much more on how we do it. It depends on the adverb. And there are many, many adverbs that inform life today. I mean, uh, you know, there, there, there is hurriedly, um, there is anxiously, uh, mindlessly, um, uh, competitively. I mean, there are lots and lots of adverbs. There's also mindfully and peacefully and thoughtfully. After working with this notion for about 20 years now, I've come to believe that the adverb that drives our culture today is the word problematically. We live in a world um, where we're focused on problem solving. 
Uh, Carl Jung, a great psychologist, um, uh, said something. When I first read this in my 30s, uh, I have to say it really disturbed me. But he said most of life's major problems can never be solved. Most of life's major problems, he said, are insoluble. They cannot be solved. They can only be outgrown. And he went on to say that this outgrowing requires the emergence of a new kind of consciousness. But we do live in a world of problems, and I think um, we're, we're kind of seduced. Uh, we encounter a problem, we find a solution, we check it off of our list, and then we go on. And, uh, and problem, I, I, by the way, I'm not arguing against problem solving. Uh, I think it's important, but I think we're stuck in it. What problem solving does is it keeps us mired in thinking. Um, thinking is a problem solving function. We think, thinking basically creates representational models of the world or an event, you know, so we can uh, abstractly or even on paper, we can look at the possible outcomes of certain decisions. So we spend much too much time thinking. We need to let go of that. Well, right. And so kind of coming back to this idea, I guess, trying to boil down what you, you know, kind of what you've been saying, this idea that... Um, if we are not getting enough sleep, if we are not sleeping deeply, if we're not sort of unplugging from the ego, we're becoming a little bit too focused on doing, doing, doing all the time, but in a sense, tamping down our awareness of how we're living, right? So if you say the point of sleep is to experience life more deeply, this idea that if we're not really getting deep sleep, we just aren't aware of sort of how we're going about our lives and are living them less fully. Well, and, and so the quality of our lives, I mean, the quality of waking life, uh, it, it, it gets so burdensome if, you know, it, it's just focused on problem solving and thinking. Um, this takes me back to, I think, a, a very critical question that usually remains unanswered. And it's a question of what is sleep? If we ask people that, uh, they, they will typically define sleep negatively. So um, sleep is not waking. Um, sleep is not consciousness. Sleep is not awareness. And, and even in sleep medicine, uh, true sleep, stage four, stage three, four, delta sleep, is defined as non-REM. What is sleep? It's not dreaming. Well, well, this is tricky. Negative definitions don't really tell us what we're looking at. They tell us what we're not looking at. Um, my sense is that, that sleep, and this, this definition comes more from my understanding of sacred traditional approaches, that sleep essentially is inner peace. That sleep is a, it's a gracious default sense of serenity. Uh, this idea that I have to go to sleep presumes that it's, it's, um, it's over the next hill. It's somewhere um, uh, away from where I am. Even scientific evidence today suggests that sleep is the default in consciousness. There is, there is a layer um, within us. Uh, there, there is a, a network, if you will, within the brain. There's a place beneath all of the noise of waking life um, where sleep resides. Uh, so there's a silence behind the noise. And when we let go of waking, it's right there. And, and I think in the end, when we open 
up to this possibility. And even even with just a little bit of practice of opening our hearts to the direct experience of sleep, what happens, and this is what I think is the most important step in healing our sleep, is we fall back in love with sleep. Sleep turns out to be beautiful. It's not just this medicine we need to take at night to function better during the day. Uh, it's an experience of grace. Uh, it's delicious. When, when we meet sleep, when we encounter, when we have an open-hearted relationship and conversation with sleep, we can't help but fall in love with it. And once that happens, um, we we keep it in our lives and it becomes a, a beautiful balancing force to waking. When I like this idea you wrote in one piece that I read, sleep isn't something that we work for. It's something that we stop working for, this mm, idea of surrender. Yeah. Surrender, yeah. Uh, in the Talmud, they say that sleep is one sixty-fourth death. They're, these rabbis were all mathematicians, uh, but but there there was an emphasis, and there is in many traditions that that um, you know the process of getting to sleep is a, is a kind of practice of dying. Um, I've seen a, over the years a number of very young five, six, seven year old kids who are incredibly sensitive and tuned in. And they don't want to go to sleep because they've observed the dissolution of their egos and, and they've been frightened by this or they've learned to be afraid of it. So um, it's an interesting practice of letting go. I think it builds uh, learning to go to sleep consciously, if you will, builds a certain kind of spiritual muscle that serves us very, very well in waking life. We move through our days with so much focus so much wanting, intent on how this activity or that task will help us achieve something so that we can check it off our list and move on. Even spaces where we are meant to relax are still permeated by this obsession with intention. Think about when you attend a yoga class, for instance, how frequently the instructor stresses the importance of setting an intention for your practice. Even as you relax, you're supposed to be accomplishing something. And I love Rubin's notion of sleep and dreams as a necessary counterpoint to the state of intentionality, of problem solving. The idea that to be fully present in our waking lives, we have to acknowledge the importance of the unconscious and surrender to it. That we have to be willing to let go of our waking selves, our egos, and our intentions to gain access to a different kind of meaning that fertile dream territory where incongruous ideas mingle and feathers become magical. On next week's episode, I'll be in conversation with Tammy Foreman, the CEO of Path Forward, a nonprofit organization that helps women and men re-enter the workforce after they take a break to raise a child. We'll be talking about how we measure workplace performance for women versus men and why our perceptions of what a committed employee looks like often changes depending on someone's gender. A quick reminder that if you are a regular listener, I would love it if you left us a review on iTunes. There's even a handy link in the show notes. I know life isn't a popularity contest, but every rating really does help us find new listeners, which helps us keep making the show. And now, since you've hung in here till the end, it's time for your final moment of Zen. If you were to ask people listening to the show to ask themselves sort of one question that might make them 
think a little bit more about their attitude towards sleep, what would that be? What comes to mind is uh, Albert Einstein with a newspaper reporter. Uh, the reporter asked him what was the, the single most important question uh, in, in life. And thinking Einstein would say something about the speed of light or relativity or so on. But Einstein said the most important question in life is, is the universe friendly? Is the universe friendly? I think we believe it's not. And we've set out to dominate nature. Now, again, it's not an argument against taking care of ourselves in the way we need to. But we need to get back into a, a, a kind of friendly conversation with nature. Nature serves us and we need to serve it. So we need to consider, reconsider the possibility that maybe the universe is friendly. This show is produced by Matt Susich, and our theme song was created by Devin Craig Johnson. If you'd like to be notified when new episodes come out, you can sign up for my newsletter on the podcast website at hurryslowly.co. That's hurryslowly.co. Thanks again for listening, and remember to surrender to the slowness of sleep. <laughs>